you've tuned into all things fine and gentry with the connoisseur french thompson where consistently we bring you ideas concepts and exposure to thoughtful content lifestyle enhancements and opportunities to improve yourself and those around you thank you for tuning in and taking a listen to this week's episode Welcome, welcome, welcome back to All Things Fine and Gentry. This is the Connoisseur French Thompson, and I'm so grateful for each and every one of you all for tuning in today, taking the opportunity just to listen and engage and um, uh, become more aware of who you are as a person. Um, If this is your first time uh, tuning into the podcast, well, welcome. Um, As the intro said, we just like to talk about a lot of great things, and it's ended up being uh, me having conversations with with good friends and uh, being able to be educated on on all things fine and gentry. And to those that are returning uh, listeners, the connoisseurs, welcome back. Um, glad that you all continue to tune in and uh, be a part of this. And uh, we'll get all the pleasantries out the way. So um, I'm excited about kind of where we are in this uh, this round. As you all know, We've recently completed our Superwoman series where we had tons of dynamic women who were able to share their story and talk about who they are and what they do. Uh, And we are now in the middle of our League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series. And um, I'm excited about it because the same way that there were so many women that I wanted to have a conversation with um, and kind of get their story and learn about them and, and, you know, expose others to kind of their story. We have this opportunity with the men and. you know, calling them Superman would be kind of uh, is silly because you call them Superwomen. But the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I think, really just talks, uh, speaks volumes about the diversity of people we're having on the podcast. So today I have my brother from another mother in a different race, my friend, uh, Dustin Thompson. Dustin, welcome to the podcast. Hello, French. All right. All right. Dustin is is uh, uh, a good friend. We're co-workers. Uh, we talk all the time, and um, he had shared something with me a few months back, and I was like, hey, I have to get this on the podcast and just talk about it. So as we've, we've talked over the last several months, there's more and more, not just about what he shared with me, but just in general in regards to the conversations we've had, and, and that's really where we're going to kind of dig into. So Dustin, as uh, typical on the podcast, we give our uh, guests an opportunity to just kind of introduce themselves. Um, just kind of where are you from? Where do you live now? Uh, what do you do? Uh, if you want to talk about where you went to school or anything like that, you can. And then we'll just kind of dig into it as we learn a little bit more about you. Yes, sir. Um, my name is Dustin Thompson. Um, as French mentioned, we are coworkers. And I am from a very small town in western Kansas. And when I say small, I mean 200 people. And I actually grew <laughs> I grew up um, on a farm outside of that town, and to give you geographical reference of what that lifestyle meant, um, if you can picture a place that's 50 miles from a McDonald's, and 50 (laughs) miles from a Walmart, and 50 miles from any type of restaurant, um, that is essentially where I grew up, uh, to, to put it as straightforward as possible so so you can get a picture of what that is, um, so yes, spent the the farm kid from out west, and uh, went to small town school. Um, 
I think I had 15 people in my graduating class. Wow. So I think that's an, that's a lot of emphasis now on the, <laughs> on the fact that I'm from someplace small, but, um, went to Kansas state university, uh, got a engineering degree there. And, uh, as French mentioned, I came to work for the company we worked for right out of college, have had several, um, positions with that company, moved around the country, saw a lot of the U S through my time here. And, um, Started with that engineering degree. I've got a I went on a few years later to get a uh, MBA, and then as a glutton for self punishment, I tapped on a master's of uh, accounting um, at the end of that MBA process. And through a couple moves, I now live in uh, Seattle, Washington. So it's uh, you, you. You're almost I don't want to say that you're almost total opposite, but I mean in regards to uh, urban versus rural. Um, yep. It's only maybe a few other cities that one could have ended up in to be, you know, even more extremes on that, um, on that spectrum. Yeah. And, and each part of the spectrum too, like I live three blocks from a light rail station. <laughs> uh, my office was three blocks from a light rail station. We became a one car family when we moved here. Um, and, like dense density clearly i i kid you not uh, my family was the only people that lived on our square mile wow. and as farmers we owned the square mile so <laughs> in my family we own that whole square mile and nobody else lives on that square mile except for us back home so um and now there are multiple homes in all directions with multi-generational families living here and then also on the other side of the spectrum that i was thinking about is on the cultural and political and entire world view spectrum as well. It's uh it's quite a different place than, than home uh, than where I grew up as well. So yes, uh, all the ways that I could be on a different spectrum. I am. So question um, as you opened your eyes along the way, cause I mean, even going to K state, right. It's in Manhattan. It's not a big town. It's not like you're in Lawrence at KU, which is, you know, just an hour or so from, from Kansas city. But I mean, as, as you made your way through this process, um, I want to call it culture shock, but, but how did you essentially evolve in being made aware of the world uh, from, you know, rural Kansas to metropolitan uh, Seattle? I mean, how, how was that process? Um, well, something that was different about me right from the start and is in reference to some of the declaration that you, you mentioned is that, uh, I'm a gay man. Mm. Um, and as such, uh, I, I knew I was gay at a very young age, mm. maybe even maybe seven or eight. Wow. Um, I remember watching meet Joe black. And I don't know if you know what that movie yeah. is, but it's a Brad Pitt movie. And I remember having all this interest in Brad Pitt and I couldn't understand what that meant, but I was like, Hmm, I think I, I think there's something about him that I like. <laughs> and, um, so immediately I was different than, than my family members, than anyone else that I knew at all. Yeah. Um, to add to this, um, frame of reference of where I came from, I grew up in a very religious, uh, very conservative, um, 
pastors in my family, traveling evangelists in the family, um, members of the family that are in contemporary recording artist groups mm. that have had number one hits in the in the uh, Christian recording artist charts. Um, so an incredible focus on religion right from the beginning. Um, I remember at four years old being taken up to the altar with by my grandmother and growing up in a Christian home, it would you give your life to Christ. Right. And um, I remember doing that at four years old. So that was, that was the doctrine mm. uh, the from the start. And so at four, having that experience and by seven or eight, experiencing that there was something different about me um that interest in or a desire for a shift in culture or a shift in acceptance that that chasm or divide started pretty early wow. um in my life um and it's interesting to think about the last whatever 35 years i guess um well, I guess 31, if you think about it in terms of from my four-year-old self. But as I went through high school and, and worked through trying to figure out the really what the word gay meant and who I was in that frame, I would have only been focusing on, I just need to get out. Mm. Uh, I need to get out of here because this will never, I will never be able to exist or coexist Um in this place as myself with these people. And so I had a very extreme view on what it would take for me to live back then. Mm. And it wasn't necessarily, um, Oh, I want it to be a liberal hotspot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I knew that it, at least at that point, I felt that it couldn't be there. Yeah. Uh, And that, that led to things like when I was 19 in college, uh, living in Europe for a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I lived in Paris um, and traveled Europe, did a backpacking trip throughout, um, I don't know, 20 European countries over the summer that year and saw a bunch of the world. And so if you can picture that, the only time I'd ever been on a plane prior to going to Europe was our senior trip to Orlando, Florida. <laughs> and, and French knows me very well. We talk about points and miles and classes and, <laughs> and how to get things free and how to maximize every every inch of travel we possibly can. So the French or the Dustin that French knows um, <laughs> did not exist back then for sure as a, as a first-time flyer at 18. And then essentially, I guess I spent the next driven by this desire for the for the experience of culture, the experience of a different look on life. I mean, you could wrap it all up into that, but driven, I've spent the last, whatever that would be, I guess now I'm halfway through, if you call it the 18-year point, but the next 18 years, trying to make up for some of that lack wow. and that divide and chasm that I had from the first half of the life so far. That's, so. Very, that's, that's interesting in so many ways. Um, so, so as you're becoming you right and you you spoke about this desire to get away right to get as far away from this place that you felt was 
uh, opposite of kind of who you were and what and what you wanted to become. Um, you know, as we've talked before, you you kind of hid a lot of it, right? You you kind of you know, you, essentially as far as with your family and things like that, you you kind of you know said, hey, I'm I'm I, I'm going to get away and and live the life that I have, and for you all to either accept or not. Which then ultimately resulted in, you know, obviously there's some strained relationships and things like that. But it, it came to what prompted the initial part of this conversation was you brought out a declaration um, that essentially like was you like this is this is who I am. And these yep. are the things that I've been dealing with over over my life. Right. So, I mean, it, well, you know, people want to share your, your social later. They can, you know, it's on there or whatever. But what prompted it? Right. How did you feel you got to this point, you know, at the age 35, age 36 to say, I now need to voice this in an articulate manner? Uh, not that you aren't articulate in itself, but on black and white. How did you get there? Um, so I'll, I'll step back to the, so the first person that I ever came out to was actually my host mom in Paris. So we're going to mm. go back to 19 year old Dustin. Wow. And I didn't even come out to her. She, um, she just picked up on it as a woman that spoke seven languages mm. had hosted, um, students, international students from all over the world for 30 years. Uh, she was, wow. She was quite a woman mm. and she just, she knew, she had figured it out and she was comfortable enough and she and I were comfortable enough that she could, how she brought it up is um, if you've been to Paris for the listeners that maybe haven't um, the city is divided into arrondissements, which are neighborhoods, essentially Mm -hmm. Um, they're all given numbers. And she told me to go check out uh, the Marais, which is one of the name of one of these arrondissements, one of these neighborhoods. And she was like, I think you'll, you'll like some stuff there. (laughs) And I mean, I hadn't, I had yet to have been there. And so one night I took the Metro, um, came out of the subway station and I looked around and I saw at least four or five pride flags. And I saw, um, bars and restaurants where it was, the crowd was almost exclusively men. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) she knows. (laughs) (laughs) She definitely knows. And, um, I was like, okay. Um, at that point in my life, I wasn't even comfortable enough. It would have been legal for me to go into any of the bars and, and, and drink in Europe, but I wasn't even comfortable enough with myself at that point to, to step over the threshold into mm. one of these establishments. I couldn't like, I couldn't understand and reconcile the, what that step would have meant. Wow. Because all of the, I'm going to call it baggage of the, religious upbringing that I had, um, that's, I couldn't even bring myself to do that. So that's a, a step along the way. And then I came back from Europe and can, can, can I pause you right there? Yep. How did it feel to be seen or accepted? Oh, um, it felt incredible wow. and, um, it felt there are people that can know me to know me before me i talked about how i had to get out yeah 
before, but it's also I felt like I had to make a break. Mm. And to this point in my life, I thought that coming out would mean that I would say goodbye to everyone and wow. everything in my life prior to that point. Wow. Whenever decision or that word got out that I was gay and it was known, I assumed it would have to require me to leave everything else behind. Mm. And so for her to have known the me that came into Paris and came into her home, have figured it out, shown me, told me where to go and, and, and known, um, she was the first person that saw both sides of Dustin and openly accepted and showed love for all of who Dustin was. That's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, I didn't even go there in my declaration. You're going to make me, you maybe have all kinds of feels here. Um, so I came back from Europe and, uh, as I was first seen by someone, I, some of my best friends from high school, I was a roommate with one of them in college and because they'd found some stuff when I was 18 in college on my computer, but never confronted me about it. They had a pretty good idea that I was gay. Um, but I came back and they sat me down and I also, from this incredibly religious upbringing, I didn't drink. Hmm. So, I mean, there was a whole list of all the things that you, didn't. you just didn't. Yeah. And, um, so in high school, I never drank with anyone. Um, but, Came back, hung out with some friends one night at a party. They knowingly encouraged <laughs> libations. And um, I sat me down and were essentially like, Dustin, we think we know you're gay and we want to ask you. And if you aren't, or if you say no, we're not sure we're going to believe you, but we want you to know that if you say yes, 100%, it'll be accepted. Mm. And so this the these were the first people that were like intimately aware of who I was. Um, and the alcohol was enough to <laughs> let my guard down and let out the whole story of my life to that point. As of 19, um, the people that I had been intimate with yeah. that they also do. Um, and so the whole thing came out with, with them opening that door of that acceptance and no negativity at all. Um, an important point here we'll come back to, but one of those four people that was in the room becomes an integral part of the story of this declaration. Wow. Um, so a couple months went by, I went back to school, came home for spring break. First night back home from spring break, my dad sits me down and he says, um, Hey Dustin, we need to talk. Mm. And so small town, 200 people. Yeah. These were four guys that I went to high school with that were now all in college. Um, word spreads. Uh, it got from there, which I don't have any animus or any blame or any, I'll be clear about that. Yeah. Uh, people are going to talk, especially about something like that. Um, but it got from them through parents of other people in school to my dad um, that I went to school with. And as we were sitting down, I earlier that year when I'd come back from Europe in relation to this declaration, I didn't have a lot of self-worth because mm. of being a, um, I really felt like there was nothing of substance to Dustin because the gayness was going to send me to hell. 
and there was no way, nothing I could do about that. And so in relation to not having a, what I thought was an ounce of substance or anything to offer, I bought a big screen TV. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I know I can get my roommates to like me as crazy and as sad as that sounds. Um, I can get my roommates to like me if I open up this credit card, buy a big screen TV, and we use that for gaming in our living room, Mm. in the apartment that I moved into when I came back from Europe. And, oh, it's so funny. I mean, I can see all of this now. I, I, I could see glimmers of that as we get to this declaration, but I, that's exactly what it was. I was trying to buy my friends because I thought Dustin had no value, but, um, it, dad sat me down and I was like, Oh God, I'm praying that he's going to talk about the big screen. (laughs) (laughs) Praying that he's going to talk about that big screen. Um, but he didn't, he said, uh, I've heard you're gay and I want to talk about it. And, uh, um, we had a two hour conversation, some memorable lines that are a bit crass. Um, my dad referencing that he, he couldn't believe I liked, and I'll use more PC terms, but male genitalia more than female genitalia, hmm. uh, came out of his mouth during that conversation. That's one of the more memorable ones. Um, and then the next morning I was sent to my grandparents, um, and they had looked up references um, for places to send me for a conversion camp or wow. conversion. Uh, which, for some of your listeners, there is a belief, an incorrect, a completely wrong, a scientifically proven, and American Psychiatric Association accepted 100% proof that you cannot convert people, but there is a belief among Christians that you can convert someone from being gay to being straight and it involves torture and conditioning and in some cases imprisonment (laughs) i mean it's not in a prison but it's in a facility that is designed for that purpose and uh yeah they were at 19 they were ready to send me to one of those um so what happened um I said, no, I'm absolutely not going. Um, That's not something that's going to happen to me. Um, But I spent my life from that point forward for a long time on pins and needles, um, Mm. trying to respect them. And these are, this is strong words without getting any respect for myself as a person, because Ultimately, I didn't believe that I deserved it. I didn't believe I deserved respect uh, because I was a sinner in their eyes. And I was, um, I mean, in the one religious, yeah, way, everyone is a sinner, obviously. And I actually, I do believe a lot of that, but um, this was a sin that I could not come back from that was a part of who I was. And- this, this is interesting, right? Because um, <clears throat> in your declaration and conversation we've had, you talked about how as a part of this, you, um, it's similar to the big screen TV, right? You look for ways to, uh, either divert attention or to provide value to yeah. cover, uh, what, whatever, you know, term you want to use, uh, from, you know, from you, right. It's like, let me put on this facade 
to block mm-hmm. who I am. And, you know, as we had this conversation and as I read the declaration, you know, it's easy for somebody to look at it and say, oh, you know, he's talking about being gay and you know all those things. But collectively, we all put on this facade at times. Right. You know, be it long term, short term, whatever it is. Because, you know, oftentimes we are afraid of being seen, right, of being seen for who we are, whichever that is. Right. Be it, you know, people call it imposter syndrome. People say, you know, oh, people don't love me for who I am, all these things. And we end up putting up all of these shields, all of these um, distractions. Uh, and we end up living our life essentially <laughs> through the distraction versus living our life authentically us. Um, yep. And you, you, you spoke a lot about that and how it became kind of self-destructive. What kind, kind of share a little bit how, you know, how that affected you and then how you came to this realization of stop, right? That yep. this, this isn't it. Yep. So I had to, the stuff I've talked about to this point just paints the picture. Uh, there's so many anecdotes of confirmation along the way. Letters from grandparents with my birthday cards that started with, we know you're not stupid. God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Mm. Uh, we know you read, you're better than this. We know you're stronger than this. Um, I mean, I mean, and those, those are, those are small anecdotal examples, but, from a family of 50 people, I've probably had equally harsh or more harsh examples thrown at me from 35 of those people. From the people uh, that are supposed to love you the most. Yep. Yeah. So everything in my life, the Christian and the Christian upbringing, the, and then the coming out and making it known that I wasn't, that I wasn't something that fit inside of that hundred percent, everything in my life, from the Bible and then also from my family said that I was gone. I was in hell Hmm. and I was disgusting and I was uh, perverted or deviant or other words that have all been thrown at me. Um, And so I really, I couldn't do anything about that. So this is kind of where that break talked about. I I didn't end up having to say goodbye to all of them. And maybe in some senses I should have Hmm. (laughs) been a healthier stance for me. Uh, for a period of time, anyways. Um, but that was done. I couldn't do anything with that. Uh, I was going to hell. So everything that about salvation, everything about the projection of being good and about presenting an image got transferred. And it went to two main places for me. This, this brainwashing, I'll call it, um, from four years old, I just essentially transferred it all to my physical appearance mm. and my show of stature in any way that you can show stature in life. Those two things became where I decided, not even really decided, but it's that's where it got supplanted um, for how I was going to have a chance to save myself. Wow. And you talked about the facade. You talked about a mask. For me, I think about it as though I constructed this wall mm. in my life that 
everything that was the real Dustin behind the wall was shit. Hellbound, mm. worthless, nothing. And on the front of this wall was everything that I could present to the world that showed that not only that I had value, but the only way that I could feel like that I was generating value with that was to make people jealous. Wow. <laughs> that was the only thing that I had that I could and in, in that state of mind. And I lived 10 years of my life like this. And, and I don't say that this sounds very rough. It was rough mentally, but I was not only, I could have human interaction and human connection and, and deep, meaningful friendships and relationships during this with people I just could never understand why they liked me for those 10 years. What am I bringing to the friendship? Why do you like me? Um, be, be, because of this, you, you can't like me because of how my family has said either you're this or that. Wow. It, yeah. What, what, what is so good about this? And I mean, yeah. It, what's what's crazy is that Dustin and I've had this conversation before, and I, I, I stop it all the time. Like we can't talk about all of it because I want to put it on the podcast. But what's so <laughs> interesting about this is that you know, this isn't just your experience, right? And it isn't isn't just a a uh, a gay experience. It is when I mean, you you see this all over when when you don't have this. Uh, connection or call it unconditional love or people who yeah self-worth or people who accept you for you because i mean you 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 don't you can't define self-worth until someone tells you that you are worth something right like you just don't just come out as a kid and say i am this without somebody pouring into you and saying hey you are important you are these things etc and so you know when that that break happens right there then then you you feel that gap and often i mean we all feel that gap with something it, it's either it can be visible it can be indivisible it can be i mean even for me i know for me it it, it had been this um i won't say feeling of being liked but uh being uh personable right that you know felt that i, I could you know uh, operate in any type of environment and, and be you know I don't say like all things, all people type stuff, but like everybody likes French, you know what I mean? Type of deal versus just saying, you know, 100% Yeah, because I, I couldn't have somebody else not like me because then it would just be, I could separate myself from my family. Like I had done from the religion. Um, but I needed everyone else to like me. Mm. Um, and with this whole, cluster of a circle in my head about I don't understand why they like me but I need to feel like everybody likes me I am real and I am deep and I really do enjoy these connections with people but to continue to have the thing that actually is meaningful to me these deep meaningful relationships I have to give everything of myself or I have to be the 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 thing that everybody will like and the way that my brain had translated different stigma from my mom having issues with body image and mm. weight self. I mean, she's skinny and gorgeous, <laughs> but that was never put into her as well. Mm. So I think that translated from her. And then my dad would spend what needed to be spent for the business. And you'd call it however you want to call that. 
but it would be purchasing things and and not a lot of connection to money and long-term impacts mm. from that. Um, so I would work myself out to sometimes three, four times a day um, at the like height in my 20s when I was doing this. I was running marathons and then I was buying and doing anything that I possibly could, traveling to exotic places, having nice things, projecting something in those arenas that, well, as long as I can have the place that everybody wants to come and, and I can provide everything that makes everybody comfortable and has a great experience there, then they're going to continue to like me because I don't know why else they would like me if if it isn't my home that isn't the center of our mm -hmm. social interaction and I can provide everything that they need. Um, so, yes, so, very much. <laughs> so, so this is good. This is good. So how, how did you make the switch, right? Because I, yeah. I, I want to talk about how, how you came out of it. And then the extraordinary gentleman side of this is now you're a champion, right? And you, you stand up and, and you've learned so much. I'm, I'm just, so I want to get to that. But how did you make this switch to become the healthy you? So uh, I just uh, trying to think. I got I was in couples therapy with my husband and in therapy a lot of the focus came back to me mm. um in terms of of things from my past and i had been in individual therapy at different times when my parents divorced they had us in therapy to see how that was impacting us and trying to help us and then i saw someone in in texas when we lived there for a while but it was all very surface and as we were in couples therapy and seeing all of all of these things come out that were directly impacting my marriage. Um, I was like, okay, this is time for me to to own some of this mm -hmm. and like really do the work. And so you get in a whole other platitude here, but the previous therapist I had in Texas, while she was great, was someone that worked with our insurance company that worked mm -hmm. with the provider that was, yeah, this is the copay and easy, easy. So it's a guaranteed source of revenue. I have no problem with that model. But everyone that I've interacted with that has actually really done work and really helped and pushed me and and my husband and I in our relationship is someone that stands on their own <laughs> without insurance and not all dealing with all that BS. And so when I got somebody that was really, I'm, we're going to push, um, I found someone that our couples therapist recommended and I immediately came in. I remember the first session I sat down, I was like, I'm scared and I don't know what is behind this wall, but I feel like everything on the side of the front side of the wall that I can see is a facade. It is meaningless. And I want to figure out, I want to try to figure out what the wall is, what's on the other side and who Dustin is. Mm, that's good. Because everything like we were, I was just racking up debt. I was, I was seeking physical validation from other people outside of my marriage. Mm. Um, and I was, had no ability to see long-term impacts of my decisions as to my life. Uh, this is something I've, I've learned later, but it's because I, I was never shown that, well, one, my life was going to end in hell. <laughs> Two, I grew up with a family that, predicted at the end of days would happen in my grandpa's lifetime. Mm. My grandpa's 84 or 85. Now he would talk about, Oh, there's a bunch more crows eating this thing or vultures on the side of the road. 
the Bible says that as more birds of prey arrive, that means that the world is ending. So not only was I going to go to hell, I was going to go to hell in a burning or burning ball of flame early on in my life. Quickly. So I was never even, I was never even set up for, well, maybe you should think about the long-term impact mm. of these decisions because it didn't matter. This thing about me that I couldn't change was meant the rest of, not even that I was worthless, but the rest of my life was worthless. Wow. And so then I was like, well, consume and get as much attention and as much outside satisfaction and gratification as I possibly can make people jealous, make people think that, and then my brain can think that that means that I've done something and then die and go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> it wasn't what I really wanted. And then those problems from all of that were seeping into my marriage. And I was like, okay, time. And the the first things that I started dealing with were were my family. Yeah. And I started with um, my sister has always been a, a champion. There were incredibly strong forces put on her um, from other people in our family that she made some decisions along the way that were impactful to me in a negative way, but has since owned those. And we've our relationship is amazing and i love her and i've forgiven her for that and i'm excited to have her in my life so i started with her and her husband they were about to have a baby and i was like okay well how am i how how are my husband and i going to be viewed in this relationship mm -hmm. with our nephew and started there and that was an easier conversation i went to my mom i had a conversation about uh, out of all the people in our, out of all my rel blood relatives, when we got married, she was the only one at our wedding. Mm. So he'd also taken a, stand, a step out. Um, but we were un just unsure. I mean, if you talk about the evils of social media, <laughs> yeah. the holes that can leave that when you don't have strong conversations, what the absence of something from social media means, even if it's a stupid thing like a like. Wow. Um, wow. You can start to build an image of what it means when people aren't liking your posts. And if they are liking someone else's posts in your family or something else about life, um, <laughs> as dumb as it sounds, it came down to the fact that somehow my mother, who is technologically challenged, had blocked me on Facebook. <laughs> um, she didn't even know it. She blocked myself and my sister, my brother-in-law, she was seeing and seeing all this stuff about my nephew, but not us. Mm. And so the story I created there, um, what that all came out and me challenging all this negativity and trying to break down some of that wall um that all came out the fact that she loves me that she wants to be a part of our lives that she refers to my husband as her son That's i mean good. all of that came out and um so that was a, an ally and then the next conversation all of this within like three months wow <laughs> um was my dad and um i was I was very forward about, hey, I love you. I want you to be a part of my life. But for the first time, you're going to have to respect yeah. me. And not only you're going to have to respect me, I'm going to need an apology. And I'm going to need an, under I need an ownership and an understanding from you about what you've done in the first 34 years of my life that's very negatively hurt me and impacted mm. me.
And so through that, I mean, it's been a bumpy ride even still, um, but at least around the homosexuality and me for me, he, um, he owned that. He apologized. He said he loved me. Um, we have other <laughs> contentious issues just because of the way we view the world and, and all the things that have happened in the last four years in the world. So, <laughs> so, so th- th- this is, this is so good because I, I continue to want people to hear, hear slash put themselves in, in your shoes of this is you. There are you, whatever the it is in your life that you hid from, you, you avoided, you weren't accepted for, right? And the, the process, one, realizing the destructive behaviors that can come from avoiding things, right? Or hiding from things. And then the reconciliation process on the back end to be a healthier you is so big and um, <clears throat> I think oftentimes we, we minimize it, uh, uh, because as Christians, right, you know, sometimes there's this, we feel that there is a, um, <clears throat> a, a level, a severity level of sin, right? <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, yours is worse than mine. So I don't have to deal with my stuff. Right. But we all have our own stuff to deal with, however you look at it. And I love your story because it is a story of working through it, but then being able to be uh, victorious on the other end and not victorious over people, but victorious over the self-destructive behaviors, right, that that come from from self-worth or any of those types of things. There's so much in here. Um, all right. All right. So yeah. that was like, oh, go, <laughs> go ahead. Go, no, ahead. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, so that was, those were like the first blocks. And I mean, the one, like I said, the one with my sister, the blocks of the wall, that's how I envision it. There's stone wall, bricks, mm. whatever you want to call them. And I started reaching for the easy one with my sister, a little bit easier one with my, a little bit harder one with my mom. And then the dad one was a pretty big, hard one. Um, and getting like these things that I've talked about, these themes of my, I always knew that why was it weight and why was it money that always were the problems with me? Mm. Like were always issues for me, have always been. Um, but that was stuff. Those were deep, deep, deep buried rocks. Yeah. That's foundational. <laughs> so, yeah. And so this was like, this was January of 2019 when these conversations with my family were going on. Um, and so I continued to push in therapy and try to, to bring um, bring some of these things to the surface. And um, it even this concept of I've talked about it lightly about me transferring or transposing the idea of salvation and the idea of how I can own my life from being gay going to hell. That's not. I can't manage that. There's nothing I can do about that to, well, if I have the perfect Adonis body Mm. or if I have the best car and the best house and the best yard and the best everything on the block, 
I hadn't even gotten to those concepts yet, but I kept pushing and working and um, and writing. Uh, journaling was has been an incredibly an incredibly helpful cathartic process for me. And it isn't I I can't say that I there'll be periods where I'll journal for a couple months, then I won't journal, and then I'll journal for one one session, one five page session on the computer and and I'll get so much out of that and then I'll go back to two weeks at a time, whatever. It's not something that I've ever been able to maintain pure consistency with, but the writing and then those weekly therapy sessions where you don't turn your back on <laughs> the next stone, mm. um, no matter how hard it is, <laughs> and it may take six sessions That's good. <laughs> um, to, to even touch the next stone, like, um, but dealing with those stones got me to where I could see that bringing it back to to all people, as you've talked about a couple of times, society places these strong blinders on mm. us and these strong constraints as to what it means to be successful, to what it means to have worth, what it means to exist yeah. in modern consumer, America, corporate, all these different layers of world what it means to be successful or have an image of success in each of those layers. And my therapist brought up this idea in me that freedom is actually really scary mm. because if you, <laughs> that's good. No, it's good. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's good. Because this tunnel and, and how I'm transitioning with this is that I could see that there was a wall there as I was starting to make progress. I could, I could envision a tunnel about my life and I could see, God, there's some freedom at the end. I can see a light at the end of the tunnel. I can, I'm working towards something. I'm getting these, these barriers off my shoulder with my family, with my own concepts of jealousy and worth and how I define who I am. And I was working towards the end of that tunnel to that light. And as I was getting closer, my therapist was like, when that light is a is a driving force, and so it can be used as motivation for the stage you're in right now. But what people don't understand is that getting to the light is freedom, and then you decide <laughs> what is important and what matters. Oh, wow. And you don't let the constraints of what society has defined as success and meaning pull you back into that tunnel. Mm -hmm. And so think about, I'm going to get to the end of the end of the tunnel. I'm going to get to that light. I'm going to touch that light and it's going to be great. And while it is incredibly cathartic and meaningful to think about all the work that it took to get to the end of that tunnel, um, it's really fucking hard to then decide what is valuable and what is meaningful once you're at the end of that tunnel and you're in the light. This is, this is so good, right? Because we allow so much of our lives to be defined by external forces, 
people, society, pop culture, all of these things. And to break free one of expectations that other people have on you and to get through all of the BS that's out there. Now, like you said, you have to decide for yourself what is valuable to you. What do you care about? What is important? What will you live for? And I think for a lot of people that you you hit it on the head. That's completely scary. It is it is easier for us to live in in yes in, in the yes. <laughs> there's a direction. When you're in the tunnel, there's a direction. Mm. The light at the end of the tunnel is the direction. It's the only way you can go. You got to keep working on each of those stones or each of those steps to get to the light at the end of the tunnel, but it's there and you're inside this constraint space. But when you get to the end, this is how I've visualized it. Um, have you seen the Indiana Jones movies? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't know which one it is, but there's one, maybe it's the cup where they're going, which I don't remember what that's oh, called. Oh, you know oh what yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Go ahead. In, so he approaches this this space where there's words written on rocks that are the floor. Mm-hmm. Or there, no, there's letters. There's letters written on rocks that are on the floor. And he has to spell a word in Hebrew or Latin or something that in each step, if you step on it, you step on the right letter, the rock holds. If you step on the wrong one, you fall through to your death. Right. And as corny as this sounds. I think it's the Temple of Doom. Okay, um, I I feel like I have torn down this wall and I've worked through so much in the last two years through therapy and writing and that declaration that we that you've hinted at. I mean, I haven't specifically talked about the declaration, but essentially everything I've talked about here in the last 10 minutes is what the declaration right. was. Um, but I feel like I'm now at this space where I have a bunch of white tiles mm. and it's the white in front of me and it's scary to think about well if i step here if this is the thing i think that's meaningful what does that mean and here is a meaningful and um what's going to keep me from falling through or being pulled back in and i want to i want to reference i know the series is champions and i think that i want to i want to be very meaningful with that word um i think i've championed the tunnel and i've championed getting to the light but I was just in San Diego last week, and I'm gonna be real frank here. We went to the beach. There were so for those listeners, I'm a 350 pound, six foot four white man, um, and I, my life at times, have been 240 and six foot four, but I'm not there right now. Um, and we were at the beach, and <laughs> there were three six pack Adonis looking guys. <laughs> Right there at the next set of towels over for me. And my, my ability to see all these things and to understand how they've impacted me doesn't yet mean that I'm done yeah. because that impact that negatively changed my feelings while I was at that beach. Wow. And I immediately started talking about it with my friends because I've learned in this process that when something starts to change my mood, I need to talk about it. Mm. I need to vocalize it and get it out. But 
I, those guys are there in a fleeting point of time, but they occupied a huge chunk of my mind and my thought process and some of that beration. And I could feel the pull back toward <laughs> back the into tunnel. the tunnel. <laughs> I could feel it. And it took me most of that afternoon to get to a space where I could think about, I need to just be able to appreciate their beauty. And I have beauty too. Yeah. I've made this not, I have a lot to offer the world. I'm not that right now. That's good. So. <laughs> Dustin, there's so much more. We're going to have to do a part two because I really want to get to um, the this other side of what we talked about before, of understanding your life, understanding you know what it means to be gay, understanding the the history behind it and all this stuff. But you you put a bow on this thing better than I I ever could have, and I hope. I truly hope that people hear and internalize and understand not just your story, but how each and every one of us are fighting through whatever foundational walls that have been placed there as we are trying to get to whatever we define for ourselves is the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, There's just so much so much there and um ah oh, it's good sir it's good so thank you and it's been a long time coming and i know it's a lot i mean I, I, you all you you you're just hear it but I'm, I'm watching him and he's processing and breathing through and i mean it's a lot to talk about these things so i thank you for taking the time today of course, of course. um and i hope that each and every one of you all um uh, you know, hear it and internalize and, and apply it to your own lives. Cause that's, that's what this is about. That's what all things fine and gentry is about. It doesn't matter if I'm talking about travel, if I'm talking about music, libations, uh, skincare or your whole life, right? Don't just listen, apply this stuff, internalize it, understand how you can get better from these things. Uh, cause that's the life of a connoisseur is being able to appreciate different things, being able to apply it to your life and become better on the other side of it. So again, thank you so much. And I know, I know it's, it's a lot to, to talk through it and, and to vocalize it. And so, um, if, if there's a person that's listening, right, that wants to, um, wants to connect, wants to be able to share, uh, their story or, you know, get encouragement from you, um, you know, is there a way for them to follow you to, you know, you have a generic email that all your junk mail goes to and you partially look at a time, you know, is there a way for a person to follow and connect if they wanted to, to, uh, yeah. to connect or just say thank you. Yeah. Um, and that we didn't even get to the, as you talked about, yeah, there's lots more. To <laughs> there's so discuss. much, there's so, I, I didn't mean, even have to have a, a part two because, because <laughs> as we talked before, we talk about homosexuality and, you know, you know, the history behind, you know, the movement and civil rights and the connection. There's so much more there I want to talk about, too, that will take yeah. up a whole thing. Um, but I think, and, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yes, of course. I, I want, like, part of this work, um, part of the joy that's coming for me from this work is uh, finding how even when I thought that I was 
worthless and had no worth that I was still impacting people's yeah. lives. Yeah. And, um, and I don't say that in any jealous or any self-centered or yeah, focused. Yeah, yeah. That is just what brings, like, that's the real thing for me is the connection with people and that joy and that trying to use some of the, well, a lot of the pain I've <laughs> gone through to help other people. And as I talked about, like one of those four people in that room, we didn't even get to that part of the story, but through my declaration um, and the big post I made on Facebook, I reconnected with some of those individuals. So if, um, if I'm able to do that, or if I'm able to offer support or even talk to anybody, I'm happy to do that. I'm uh, at Dustin J Thompson on Instagram uh, my email address is dustinjthompson at gmail.com. And uh, I'm on Facebook. Actually, Facebook is the one place I'm not that. My Facebook um, is my husband's last name. So it's Dustin Lowendorf. But yes, please feel free. And that's, if anyone needs to know, that's L O E H N D O R F. Um, we'll put those in the show notes because that's yeah. very long. <laughs> yes, it is. That's fine. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but, um, but yes, I am most happy to, uh, to talk to people and, and, and help others. That's so. awesome. So again, as I said, thank you. Thank you, Dustin, for, for talking. And I, I hope that each and every one of you all have enjoyed this episode today. Please, please, please rate, review, like, share, uh, share this, um, tag us on social uh, these things help us to get the word out, get the the great lessons out, um, and let us know if you enjoy um, and enjoy what what we're putting out here. So uh, appreciate each and every one of you all for tuning in uh, and continuing on in this uh, series of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And we will see you after a while.